We're back with another episode of Revenue Champions with me, your host, Ryan Reiser. Today, we've got a burner. Scott Lease joins us and talks about what does it take to be successful as a sales leader today at a new company? What he shares is maybe going to surprise you a little bit. So tune in. You're not going to want to miss this one. Welcome to another episode of Revenue Champions Podcast with me, your host, Ryan Reisert. And today, uh, we have somebody that I think for a lot of you may not need an introduction, but uh, I'm super excited to chat with him. I've been following him for quite some time, has a tremendous amount of experience under his belt. Uh, and today, we're going to talk about something he's pretty passionate about around sales leadership. But Scott Lease, welcome to the show. Uh, for those that don't know you, quick introduction, who's Scott Lease? Uh, who you yeah. be? Who you be in this world? Who I am? Well, this morning I woke up a very happy Golden State Warriors fan, so I just want to put that out there. Uh, I'm Scott Lease. I've been running and building sales orgs for the better part of 20 years. Was a VP of sales a half dozen times. Um, got a couple acquisitions, Main Street Hub, among others. Uh, last company I was an operator at is a company called Qualia, Unicorn Status couple times over now. And uh, a couple of years ago, I started my own consulting and advisory company. Also run a company called Surf and Sales. It's an event company and a podcast. Uh, also run a company called Thursday Night Sales. Every Thursday night, live happy hour, a couple hundred people. Uh, started that during COVID. I've written a couple books, I do some angel investing. And uh, yeah, just a uh, content creator like everybody else <laughs> so you don't do very much you know what do you, what do you do in your spare what do you do with all that spare time scott <laughs> well i i either am with my kids running around taking them to practices or games and whatnot or i'm you know doing something work related for the last few years there's not i don't have a whole lot of downtime where i just do nothing or turn it off and go uh <clears throat> disappear too much but I'm getting close to those days. I'm not getting any younger, Ryan. So I'm, I'm inching my way towards retirement here. Oh, perfect. Well, uh, I, I, I have a few more years. I'm hoping I can, can get there, uh, at least be positioned to be there um, soon. But uh, so when it comes to uh, half a dozen times and you kind of nonchalantly throw out there, oh, you know, it's this one and that one, uh, you, you've run a few successful orgs, let's just put it that way. And today I wanted to talk a little bit around, uh, you know, what does it take to be a successful sales leader uh, and, and maybe dive a little bit into current state, right? What does it take to be a successful sales leader in a time like this? And you've been at it for about 20 years. I, I, uh, I can see some of the things that early in my career, I wasn't in leadership yet, but I had leaders during the financial crisis. You know, I started my career just before the crisis went through layoffs and then the bounce back. And, um, you know, it feels like we're kind of there again. I don't know. Uh, we're definitely seeing some of the layoffs, but uh, uh, be curious to hear your thoughts on uh, what does it take to really be a strong sales leader one? And then maybe we can dovetail into some, like, what does it take to be a strong sales leader in a time like this, you know, where there's yeah. a lot of unknowns, a lot of uncertainty. Um, so, you know, for you, uh, maybe to start the conversation today, what are those, some of the things that you you think are the, the must-haves if I'm a new sales leader um, to, to really be successful? You know, 
um, do you have a framework that you tend to go to? Like, how do you start that conversation? And uh, maybe you're talking to a founder trying to hire the new uh, sales leader, or maybe you're consulting with a new sales leader. Just curious to hear your thoughts on what, what makes a, you know, somebody who can actually lead, uh, and we can dive in there. Does that sound, sound like a fair way to go today? Yeah. Well, there's, there's all the sort of soft skills that can get mentioned, like, you know, empathy and <clears throat> charisma, potentially inspiration, um, an educator, teacher, there's all these soft kind of skills, but real tactically, you have to be able to take a complex product or solution and simplify the hell out of it. Mm. Uh, especially if you're going into an early stage type company that doesn't have any brand recognition or marketing or anything like that, you're taking it to market for the first time. Um, you have to take what somebody else has built, which is often quite complex and you could show 9,000 different features and you have to pare it all down and extract the three to five that really matter. So figuring out how to simplify the messaging, I think, is an overlooked skill set. And not a lot of, of VPs of sales have that ability. And that compounds the problem of selling because then they don't know how to teach the people that they bring on board how to simplify things either. Another thing that I think about is you've got to be able to take everything that's in your head or in the founder's head and get it onto paper. That's really the only way that you scale. Otherwise, you can bring on new people and say, oh, yeah, Ryan, just go do this. Just go do that. People can't follow that. <clears throat> they cannot follow that. They're not you. They need a lot more kind of canonized and codified advice. So taking the time to do the dirty work of putting together a sales playbook and a sales process. And, you know, there's 30, 50 different things that could fall in there from cold call scripts to email sequences to locking in your ICP and identifying your buyer personas, all, all of this stuff. You build that out, you put it on paper, now it's a repeatable, scalable thing. This is something that many, many startups and many VPs of sales don't do because it's boring and a fucking pain in the ass. <laughs> That's one of the reasons why people don't do it. Another reason is, you know, sales leaders are salespeople usually, and salespeople are not very organized. So you want to set yourself apart as a sales leader. You get very organized and very process driven. So you build that kind of thing out. You know, the, something that I would have said was important, but not mandatory years ago that I would say is mandatory now is you got to have a brand of some sort that recruits and sells for you. Mm. So you take somebody like yourself who's got 50,000 followers or whatever, right? on LinkedIn or any other social channel for that matter. And Ryan announces today, you know, I'm hiring at such and such place. And Ryan goes on his podcast and announces that. And Ryan on his webinars is announcing that and his content talks about it. You just by the power of your network will have people come to you. 
So you just save money on, you don't need an internal recruiter. You don't need a staffing firm. You don't even need to place a job ad. You're talking about saving tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars as a sales leader in a couple years period of time, just on recruiting fees. If you've got a big enough, powerful enough brand and you can close deals, hopefully with it as well. Everybody sees Cognizant, Orion's associated with it. James is associated with it. Scott's associated with it. What the hell does that company do? They go take a look. They reach out to us or they fill out a form and they're like, yeah, I n- never heard of you all, but I you know, saw Scott works there. I saw Ryan works there. Now, all of a sudden, you've got a little bit of deal flow and your brand becomes a little bit of demand gen for you. This is, a, this is to me, more and more important in this day and age where it's so hard to cut through the noise and regular kind of prospecting stuff is a challenge. <clears throat> so you're saving money on recruiting. You're getting deal flow. You're acting as demand gen for the company. Hell, some people's personal brands are stronger than the company brand. You know, I can think of two people right now at the top of my head that they are X company to me. If I think of the company, I think of this particular person. Who are those to the degree that, I'm curious. I'm curious who those people are. Well, one person that comes to mind right now is Zoe Hartsfield. So sh- yeah. she is spec it to me yeah. right now. You know, I could I could name a couple other people at Speckett, but not really. And I couldn't even necessarily deliver a pitch of exactly what Speckett does. But I know her. She's very out front, very visible, right? Things people people like that. Um, so I, I think that having that that brand or that presence to be able to recruit quickly and cheaply, as well as bring in deal flow, kick it over the fence. I think that that's more and more important these days and something that you could get away without having. And I don't know how much longer you can get away without having it. So there's a lot to unpack there. And so this will get us jump started for sure. Um, I actually want to reverse it because that last piece you said it was new. You wouldn't have said this a few years ago. When did you start to see that that shift on the personal brand? Um, sales well, leaders in particular, salespeople in particular, most of them, a lot of the other things we talked about are 100% true, not organized, won't do the playbooks, uh, rely on others to, to provide the messaging, all these fundamental things. But the brand and the demand gen and the, being responsible for putting themselves out there, if you talk to most salespeople, they, they want to avoid that like a, you know, with a 10 foot pole, but you're saying you're seeing that as being a vital piece to becoming, I do. you know? Yeah. When did you see that shift? Um, within, within the last couple of years, um, yeah. potentially maybe since, you know, the pandemic, but the, from the recruiting aspect, you know, I, I really started giving a shit about my brand in like 2000, 16 2015 something like that um and it was strictly all about recruiting there was no side hustle stuff in my mind at that time or you know trying to get deal flow my buyers weren't even on linkedin it was just i need to hire a truckload of people and how can i how can i do that quickly and and cheaply but you know i'd go back maybe three years and beginning of of covid everybody gets 
you know, not everybody, a lot of people lose their job and that all of a sudden content creation and side hustles and, hey, you got to diversify your income. You can't give everything to just your W-2. They'll cut you in a second. All of this stuff to me, like really rose to the forefront, you know, and some people like myself who had been, had been doing it for a few years, were in good shape to survive all that. And other people jumped on board, you know, for the first time, a lot of people lost their jobs and started their own company, their own consulting company, their own training or coaching company and whatnot. <clears throat> so I think it's really been the last, you know, few years. And I think even from an account executive perspective now, Everybody knows it's harder and harder to cold call somebody and have them pick up the phone. Everybody knows that it's harder to send emails and get somebody to read it and reply. It's harder and harder to get, you know, people on LinkedIn to reply to you. It's not that any of those things can't be done. It's just different and a little trickier because there's so much noise coming at us all the time. So one of the things that is working better and better is utilizing your network and partnering up or co-selling or referring in all of this kind of stuff, right? You try, you're trying to get a deal, Ryan, with somebody and you send me a message like, hey, Scott, I've been talking to so-and-so, like I can't quite get through, like I know you're friends with them, can you help me out? Bang, I'm like, yeah, sure. I open the door for you. Right. I message somebody and say, hey, James, <clears throat> my buddy Ryan's been trying to get a hold of you. I think you guys should talk. He's got a good solution. And now all of a sudden the conversation happens. That is more and more important, not just for VPs, but for uh, AEs, for SDRs even. And, and I just see it becoming more and more important as the amount of noise and clutter in our inboxes increases rather than decreases. So I, I, I just think that if I was a founder and I was hiring an early VP, there's no way I hire somebody who has no brand, no presence. I don't do it because I don't think that they have a network to help bring in deal flow. And I don't think they have a network to recruit. And I'm just thinking those are two big red flags for me. I can find somebody who's just as good, who also has those things. Yeah, the, t the talent piece is so like crucial when you talked about that, but the deal flow component of it is, is, is like the, the cherry on the, on top, right? It becomes, uh, it's really interesting. My own experience, uh, you know, I, I had exited the sales developers right before the pandemic with this idea that I was going to kind of sit back and figure out what I wanted to do next and took a, Basically, like an AE job with Connect and Sell, and I was going to do some other stuff with them. I knew the product well, and I thought it'd be easy to get out there and sell it. And uh, the pandemic hit, but uh, so so there's some weird stuff going on there. But I had access to a system that's supposed to make it super easy to cold call, as you said, right? It's harder to do it. Use something like that, get a lot of conversations. Um, and I used that thing like no other, right? Probably like five thousand dials a day for the whole time I was there. But when I look back on the quota I had and the attainment, I, I hit my quota by October uh, for the year. And that's the first time I've been in an actual producing, quota producing role for a while because I've been in sales leadership or entrepreneurship in the last few roles. I just wanted to not have to do that for a minute. Uh, like 70% of my deal flow came from my network, you know, LinkedIn, 
podcasts, things like that, even though I had access to this system to cold call. Right. What a, right. What a massive competitive advantage. Yeah. Which is built Huge. in. Massive, right? Um, and, and, and it's a bit of a moat because it, it, you can't build that competitive advantage in an instant or overnight. You can't buy it. It takes time to invest in it and, and, and build it up. And, you know, if your competitors don't have that, you got a huge leg up. If your colleague, you know, sitting next to you doesn't have that and you're vying for, I don't know, number one salesperson of the year or president's club or something, huge competitive advantage for you. As a recruit, you go into interviews and you and I are side by side as candidates and you're like, I got a huge network. And I'm like, I have no network the person's probably going to have an, get hired more or get a higher offer who has a, a bigger, a bigger network. Um, so just leveraging that is just, I can't stress it enough. And it's just not done enough. There's some, there's some AEs and some companies who message me all the time asking for help. And I'm always thinking, I don't know why everybody else doesn't do this all the time. You know, the doors open quick. I, I had this conversation with Kevin Dorsey, who's my neighbor here in Austin. And we were talking and kicking around this idea of us building a, a software tool. At one point, we had, we had this idea and kind of being co-founders. And we were talking about how will we get our first 100 customers? And we were just like, well, do you know how many sales leaders are in our network? We know everybody who's a director of sales or a VP of sales. We've interacted or helped or added value to most of, if not all of them. So if I reach out to, to you, Ryan, and say, hey, I built this tool with Kevin. And Kevin reaches out to James and says, hey, James, I built this tool with Scott. At the very least, you're going to take a meeting with us. Right. Yeah. Because of the relationship that we have, potentially the reputation that we have. Right. Huge advantage. And, and the fact that you don't, you know, a lot of people think about this, you know, when you, when you think about that concept um, and the building of it, the moat you've created, when you've taken the time to build a big network and you're consistently doing this, those things that most people won't do, we'll get into these other pieces like the playbook and so on and so forth, kind of the same concept. But from the brand side, it takes time. You, you, you have to run through it and you can't just like jump at every single moment to ask. But once you have a big network, to your point, like a hundred is nothing, right? You don't have to go and like spam your, your network to get real traction real fast, right? I could ask you for one introduction every six months. You're not going to be upset, but that could be like the difference between me, you know, being over quota and not those two extra deals. Um, and then, you know, if I have a hundred of them like you, like, that's my whole year, you know, and it, it, it's interesting that more and more people don't get that. Um, and the way that you're explaining it here, hopefully some people that are either aspiring to be VPs or maybe they're still AEs, like you said, uh, might double down and start thinking about ways to build their brand. My question now becomes, because you, you, you hinted at this in the beginning, it's like you were not using your personal brand for the purposes of selling. Your audience wasn't even in the channel. But you know that there's an opportunity to leverage that for recruitment. Uh, how important is it to be on LinkedIn still? Is it is it too late or is it still the beginning? 
is it still the channel to build or are you seeing other channels that are just as important that, that folks should pay attention to? Well, even I absolutely, if even if their customers aren't there, is I guess the bigger. Yeah, I, I absolutely think you should still build there. I, I don't think that I would say it's the beginning. Um, I think maybe depending on what vertical or industry you're in, there's other channels that could be interesting. I've never really figured out how to crack Twitter, but I know a lot of people have, and that works for them. I don't use Instagram or Facebook. Um, I know people are using TikTok and getting traction and, and clients that way, but the table stakes one to me is, is LinkedIn. Um, and you never know, you know, I said before, like my buyers weren't on LinkedIn. Yeah. Well, that was exactly. at that, that was at that company. Mm -hmm. But gone are the days where, you know, you go work for some company for 25, 30 years and then hang them up. That shit doesn't happen anymore. You know, the longest I ever worked at one place was three years and one month. That's it. So you got to have a longer tail to, to the vision of like, well, my buyers aren't there, so I don't I don't need to be there. Get the fuck out of here. You're only going to be at that job for another year or two. What about the next one? What if your next one, that is where the buyers are? What if you get tired of doing W2 work and you decide to be a coach or a con consultant or a trainer or whatever? Now all of your buyers are there. What if you try to build a community of some sort? A Patreon group, uh, a Slack group, whatever. Run events. All of your buyers are there now. So you still should do it. There's the recruiting reason to do it. There's the honing your skills as a writer, as a content creator. There's path towards diversification and extra income streams. And there's certainly the reality that you might change where you're at and your buyers may end up being there. So you might as well get started you know, sooner rather than later. Yeah, I love that. I've seen that. I've seen you're a little bit more active on Twitter these days. Uh, so you're trying to, you're trying to try <laughs> I'm, I'm, uh, I'm trying a little bit. I, I, uh, I can't, I can't keep it just like strictly professional though. That's, that's, I think that's one of the challenges. Like I'm, I'm, I cross over too much between professional advice and personal stuff and, cheering on my teams and talking shit about something and raging yep. against whatever political thing is going on in the world. So, you know, that's probably part of my problem. Whereas you go on to LinkedIn and I'm, I'm talking about sales, I'm talking about business, I'm talking about leadership. It's like people know what they're going to get and they don't give a shit about, you know, what team I'm rooting for this weekend or whatever. Um, that's on me. And, uh, but that's, you know, that that's is not something that has been super prohibitive to me in any in any way. But if I wanted, if I had a mission to like, okay, you got to get to a hundred thousand followers on Twitter now, I, I think that that's something that I would have to change and be a lot more focused and kind of intent about what kind of stuff I'm putting out there. Yeah, that that's that's a hundred percent true, and I think that's the challenge I've had personally. Is you know, same with you. I don't I don't have the Instagram and the Facebook, uh, but I know that. You know, for the same reasons that you would want to have a brand on LinkedIn, it's probably a really good place to be for recruitment, probably even like a Snapchat, you know, anything about the, the future generation, because that's where they are. 
Um, yeah. and so if you built there, you might be able to use it for, you know, not just customer acquisition, but, uh, other, for other reasons, networking in general and, and talent, et cetera. But it's challenging when you start to think about the, the actual social channel, uh, and then what people are there to engage on. But I think people are getting pretty creative there and even having different avatars, right? Here's my personal avatar and here's my yeah. more professional avatar. And so you're seeing more of that. True. So I think that's interesting. We could probably you, beat that to, you have to You have to figure out too, like there's so many different options and, and all of them can probably be successful if you, if you put the right amount of time and energy into it. But you're, you're probably going to enjoy one or two channels more than another, or one or two channels is going to feel more like you, more authentically you, right? Like I, 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 I'm not, I'm not a video, a big video guy. So if I go on TikTok and I start trying to do all these stupid fucking dancing videos and, you know, overdub music to it and all this, like you would look at that and be like, Scott is seriously stoned right now. Like, what is he doing? <laughs> right? That's like, that's not me. Right. So yeah. I know I could put energy into TikTok and drum up leads of some sort in some kind of business but why it's not it's not worth it to me right now i can't spread myself so thin there's only so many things that i can do right and i think you just have to be good about sticking with what works and feels good for you that is fun for you that feels authentic for you keeping your eye on the other things and maybe dabbling and staying aware of them, but you don't have to go all in all the time to the new shiny object that has shown up that everybody's talking about. Remember when clubhouse came out, everybody went bonkers over. Yeah. Everybody went nuts over clubhouse. Right. I thought it was a really great idea. I dabbled in it. And then I realized I could figure out a way to monetize this, but I don't think it's worth my time. Because that's time over there that I'm not spending here. Right. And I already know if I spend time here, I do well. Yep. Yep. I think that's a really good list lesson. You know, pick one, maybe two. And don't be afraid to dabble. As you said, try some things out. But being authentic is key across the board. And that that's where I think a lot of people struggle to get started. Um but we could talk about that a lot. I think a lot of people are probably going to get value just from that, the few snippets you hear. I, I want to get into some of the other stuff that you talked about because they're so vital and get missed so often. And so when you talked about um, the actual, someone who's organized and process driven as being like a, a really important thing, uh, blows my mind how many sales leaders shoot from the hip. Yeah. Right. It's, it's, you know, you're on their process. Their process is a for a, a weekly forecasting call where they're basically just asking you to predict shit with no like stage definitions and exit criteria and a reason why it's like, Hey, Hey Scott, there's jokes about these days. Like, hey Scott, what's your, oh, yeah. uh, what's your best, what's your commit? What's your, what's your stretch? <laughs> what's your stretch stretch? It's like, dude, where the, where is it in the process? <laughs> where, like, you know, like the process should be telling you that, not me telling you something I feel in my gut. But I can't tell you how many organizations I've been a part of, really good ones, right? I've been a, I've been a part of an organization 
uh, as a sales leader that was acquired by Sprinkler, which is a unicorn. It's now public. And, you know, like you're sitting on these freaking forecast calls with 50 to 100 reps. And it's the, it's like, what is this? And um, I saw them go through the process from what was shooting from the hips to something that was more like force management driven. And uh, the changes in terms of how you can actually leverage that experience from, hey, we're just like making stuff up to there's actually a process that we can learn from here uh, is just night and day, right? And the difference between uh, an organization that has that versus someone that doesn't is generally the difference between success and failure. But um, are there any things that you provide, like some, some frameworks or processes? I know you've, you've written a book on this before as well that you'd recommend for someone who maybe just doesn't have that yet, but or tips, ideas yeah. to get started? Because it's so vital and you just don't see it very often. There's so many different parts of it. I mean, people don't have a framework or a process for recruiting. People don't have a framework or a process for onboarding and training new hires. People don't have a framework or a process for how their calls should go. People don't create a framework for how they should demo the product. People don't have a framework, shockingly, for how to deal with inbound leads and where they get routed and territory, you know, splits and commission. Everything is just like, we'll play it by ear. And they stay away from locking in a process as long as possible, you know? And I think one of the reasons they do it is other than it being a pain in the ass, like I said, is there's so much pressure for a sales leader to just close deals, sell, prove, prove you fucking belong here right away that they just get overly fixated on the dollar, you know, yep. but you, what ends up happening is you play yourself out of a job when you do that. Cause you, you help close deals, you get to a million, 2 million, 3 million in revenue or whatever. And then your boss looks at you and is like, well, you got us to here, but there's no real structure here. I'm going to have to hire somebody. And then you get topped off. Somebody gets hired, you know, who's been there, done that before you. And you're like, what, wait, what did I do wrong? I got us all this revenue. Yeah. And they don't realize, well, what you did doesn't scale though. None of these people are pitching the same way. None of them are demoing the same way. I don't know where our next recruit's coming from. We don't have a great accurate forecast. Our pipeline and our account hygiene is a total mess. We got thousands of unassigned accounts, right? Just all this kind of junk. And in really good orgs, it ends up getting fixed eventually. It just won't be fixed by you. <laughs> It'll be fixed by the person who comes after you. So you want to do it right and you want to save yourself a lot of pain, you do it from the beginning. You build all these systems and process, you get everything down out of your head on paper. You invest in a rev ops, sales ops person, you know, to be your kind of co-pilot. You, you invest in that early and then you're built to scale from the beginning. Much smarter way to do it. It's uh. I always say this, you know, like everything's a process. Everything's a process, right? Um, and when you talk about it the way you just said it, it's like, oh yeah, I can see that. But we do get so lost in the outcome versus like the mechanics to get to the outcome. And because of that, we don't really know how to change things when 
when it's not going the way we're we're expecting it to go, right? So, you know, if you get in and you can start kicking ass and taking names because you're good at sales and there's something there, maybe there's a little bit of pipeline, you got the a little bit of demand gen from your network, whatever, you can come in and get stuff going. But to your point, like what's actually working? What are the knobs that we need? Who is the type of person that we need to bring into this team? Yes. Uh, skill set, all that stuff. It's so much easier with the process. Um, and um, and I think that, you know, it doesn't need to be super complex in a lot of uh, areas, but but just having something, like you said, out of your head and on paper goes a long way. And I think to your point, uh, the commitment piece is what I see. Uh, I see a lot of people fail to commit because they don't want to, they don't want to be wrong. Uh, but, you know, what's your thoughts around, you know, just getting something down versus it being perfect? You know, because I think that's that's the conversation that uh, I'm always interested in. Or, well, or the excuse you hear, right? Oh, it's going to change anyway, so we don't need to document it yet. <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> well, my response is, of course it will change. It, you know, it probably will change every six months or so. Mm-hmm. Th- these are living, breathing documents the living breathing system there's always an excuse not to do something and put it in place so what if we have to tinker it that's good if we're changing it six months from now because we've learned certain things this is a positive it's a net positive and when you've already built the framework from the beginning it doesn't take that long and it's not that hard to quickly edit and revise and optimize you know our sales pitch or whatever, right? If we've been focused on demoing these four to five features and all of a sudden we release a new feature that is tip of the spear, you don't necessarily just want to add that one into the demo. You might want to add that one in and replace something else. You might want to add that one in and move it to the front. These are normal kind of changes. So it's an asinine argument to me if somebody's like, well, I don't want to put anything on paper because it's just going to change. It's going to always fucking change. Always. Yeah. And it should, it should evolve. We'll get better at what we do over time. Document everything is, is one of the best pieces of advice that, you know, I could give to a, a sales leader. Document everything. And uh, then let's, 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 let's bring that one more up because this is the, the first thing you brought up, but it, it seems to be just so hard to get out of people, but messaging and simplifying the message and specifically like for me i do so much work in cold calling and how many people are so opposed to a script right like oh we can't be scripted a terrible idea we have we have yeah. uh, we have senior people that they know what they're doing why would going going back to why would we document and tell them what to say but uh especially well, especially SaaS and, and enterprise sales like you got some pretty complex stuff that if you start to just blurt out what it is, you're just going to lose everybody. Like, do you, how do you think about messaging? And you, you mentioned the simplification of messaging. Any, again, any ideas, frameworks, tips, resources that you could turn someone to on how to start thinking about simplification um, and maybe just <laughs> documentation? You already brought up having the script, but I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that. I just think that we overcomplicate things. I think that we get too interested in feeling or sounding smart. I think we overemphasize the intelligence level of our buyers sometimes. 
and, and, you know, think they'll be impressed by big fancy words. I I think just talking like a, a layman and, and talking to somebody like you would talk to me at a bar about what you do. I think people relate to that more casual kind of thing than something super formal and, and fancy and putting, putting the dialogue on a pedestal. I don't give a fuck who I'm talking to. You know, I don't care if you're the CEO of a billion dollar company, man, your time is not worth more than mine in my head. This is the story that I tell myself to like psych myself up or, or stay hungry or whatever. I just tell myself, you need me more than I need you. And I'm, I'm just here to help. You want my help? Great. You don't want my help? Whatever. So that helps me just think, I just need to talk to Ryan. He's just a normal dude, you know, puts his pants on one leg at a time like everybody else. So I try to, I try to trim the fat. You know, I, I, I usually what happens is a founder will explain, you know, here's the product. Here's all the things they can do. And founders are in love with their product. They think their baby is the cutest baby that's ever walked the earth. Okay. And every single feature is important and it's just not. So my job is to trim. If the founder tells me there's 25 amazing things, I got to cut 75% of it. I got to figure out what's going to resonate. Once you do that, you create this first pitch. Well, the pitch that I build today is going to be very different than the pitch that exists three years from now. You want to know why? Because we get better at explaining things. Yeah. We figure out simpler, faster ways to explain what we do, who we are, why this works. In the beginning, it might be a 10-page script. A couple of years later, it might be three pages. Because I get smarter. I, I learn about what resonates more. So it's just that trimming process that I think um, naturally should occur. I don't think you need to do this like every day, but every like six months or so, let's, re- let's review what we're doing and what do we need to reshuffle? What do we need to cut? What's not resonating? That's how I think about simplification. Can I explain this to my grandmother in a way that she knows something? She can understand it. Can I go to my 14-year-old and explain, hey, this is what cognizant is and does. Will he understand it? If he can't, it's too complicated. Same thing with like a, a comp plan. If you can't go home and explain to your significant other how you get paid and what you'll get paid in under five minutes, the comp plan is way too complicated. If they can't track it and they can't follow it. So I'm always thinking about the simplification of messaging. Just like people talk about in email prospecting, get rid of the fluff, keep it short. What words are we trimming, right? You get a, That's one of the reasons why creating content again is, is powerful because you, you and I are writing stuff, you know, every day you write this thing and it's a brain dump and then you read it one more time and you're like, well, that was fluff. I didn't need to say that. That's repetitive, <laughs> right? All this kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, the, the last book that I released um, it was three times the size. The, fir- the first draft was three times the size of the finished product. Yep. And I cut two thirds of it because it was repetitive or fluff or not the sharpest, crispest way to tell a story, right? 
And I just, our attention spans are small. I want to get in, have an impact, get out. This continuous trimming, this continuous massaging, um, simplifying. And again, what you mentioned, you know, it could be 10 today, three tomorrow or three, three from three years from now, but getting it down, getting it on paper, testing it, stress testing it, learning, trimming, learning, trimming. Um, I, I absolutely love that. And, um, you know, the process, the process that you have to do that is also really important, right? Having a process of knowing how to do that, how to measure what might be working and what's not working is so key too. going right back to that fundamental, right? Uh, yeah, sure. You have a simplified message, but how do you even know if it's working or not? If you don't have a process in place, what are, you know, what does success even look like? So I think you nailed so many things here today, Scott. Um, you know, this was, this was a fun fantastic conversation for me anyway. Um, as we get as we get to the last part here, there's a question we always love to ask everybody. But um, um, before I get there, uh, if somebody learned something, wanted to reach out to you, I know you complain about this often, so they can't connect with you. But what's the on LinkedIn? But <laughs> what's the easiest way to uh, to get in touch well, with they, you? They can you can still message me on on LinkedIn. I, I reply reply to everybody, so you know that's totally fine. You can catch me every Thursday night at ThursdayNightSales.com, and uh, you know, I'm, I'm not hard to find. You'd be surprised. You'd be surprised how approachable some people are that you might think are not super approachable or hard to get in touch with. So happy to be, happy to be helpful to anybody uh, who reaches out. You heard it. You heard it here, right? Get in touch with Scott because he's helping AEs, SDRs get foots in the door. So uh, if you haven't followed him, I recommend it. Uh, phenomenal source of uh, knowledge. Uh, just just the tip of the iceberg from today here. Last question we have for every guest, Scott. Um, this is always a fun one because I don't know how to do the conversions. But if, uh, or if we got to cross the pond, but you had an extra 50, you're a sales leader right now. You have an extra 50,000 pounds. I think it's probably like, I don't know, 60 something thousand dollars or something. I don't know what the conversion is these days. But if you had that extra money, it's just sitting there. Where do you, where do you make that investment? Okay, so I'm a sales leader right now and I just... Yep discovered a pot of gold and I have $60,000. What do I do with it? Yeah. What do you do with it? Technology, process, tools, systems, whatever you want. What would you do with that money for your team? If, you know, I'd to, probably give all of my key leaders underneath me a raise. It's probably what I would do with it. So I can't exist and function without, without them. So my, my number one hire that I make, first hire that I make after I, I take on a new VP of sales gig is a head of sales ops. A lot of people call it head of rev ops these days. Mm -hmm. um, I've worked with two phenomenal ladies that I would work with forever. Uh, and I would, I would give them a raise and make sure that they're not going anywhere. And if I had sales managers or directors that are kicking ass and probably deserving of a shot, you know, to move on and move up the ranks I want to keep them a little bit, so I'd probably throw some of that money at them. So the uh, I, there's a long-winded way of saying I would throw it at my people, man. Yeah. I'd throw it at my people. I think I could get more out of them being happy and motivated than I can from trying to squeeze increased productivity out of people from some tool or process change or something like that. 
I love it. I love it specifically that you went right to ops and you mentioned that earlier too, like your right hand, you know, your right hand is that person. It's your first yeah. key hire. Uh, and it goes a long way with, with your, everything we talked about today with process and documentation and, um, I love it. So God, thank you so much for, uh, for tuning in today. Uh, really appreciate you, uh, sharing your knowledge and, uh, you know, thanks for, thanks for being on the show. Yeah, you're welcome, man. A lot of fun. Catch up. Yeah. All the best.